you know, when you're working on something like a movie or a long a TV series, when you take it all the way through to post, you're going to be in a relationship with it for a long time. And it's just like a relationship with another person. There's going to be thrilling moments. There's going to be boring moments. There's going to be frustrating moments, but it has to really be under your skin enough to make it all, to make you care. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, as childhood slips away, four young girls decide to make the most of their time together in director James Ponsold's drama, Summering. The film follows four best friends on the brink of starting middle school who struggle with the harsh truths of growing up as they realize their lives are about to change forever. In addition to Summering, Mr. Ponsold's directorial credits include the feature films The Circle, The Spectacular Now, Smashed, and Off the Black, and episodes of Master of None, Shameless, and Parenthood. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Ponsold shares insight into the making of Summering with fellow director Rai Russo-Young. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Okay, so I'm so excited, and I'm just going to dive right in. First, how did this project come about for you? Um, there's like a long version and a short version. I'll give you the in-between. Um, the initial idea came when there was a body found not so far from my house um, along the 110. I'm out in the Pasadena area, and there's sort of a large encampment of unhoused people. And there was an older man who was found um, in a tent, and he died of natural causes. He'd been living on the streets for a long time. Um, and they couldn't identify him, which, as everyone in L.A. knows, is sadly something that happens quite a bit. There's actually a large, um, every year, every two years, there's a giant memorial in Evergreen Cemetery for the unclaimed and unnamed dead. It's over a 1,000 people, men, women, and children. Um, but I became sort of obsessed with this man and his identity and who he was and why he couldn't be named. Um, and I sort of followed the story, just wondering if someone would name him, you know, if he would be, um, get the dignity of being named. And I also felt like if there's any signifier of a breakdown in our social contract with each other, like this safety net that should be looking after our communities, it's to not even receive that. Someone living on the margins that doesn't even get named. And I felt like initially I had an idea for a much larger story, like a big sprawling Nashville shortcuts story about a number of families and a community, like a middle-class community that abuts um, people who are living on the streets, who are neighbors. Um, and I was trying to crack the story, and it was big and unwieldy and pretentious. And, <laughs> and I, um, as I would sort of talk to friends about it, sort of just casually, we'd be on the phone, we'd be in bars, whatever. I was like, hey, I've kind of got this idea. I'm not sure what to do with it. Um, probably told 20 or 30 people, equally male and female. But I would say half the people, when I would mention to them what had happened, they would say sort of unprompted, what if instead of an older man, it's a teenage girl that is found dead? And I have a good poker face, so when people would say that, I wouldn't say anything. But inside, I would be wondering, what is that about? Like, why do people need to... What is it in our collective psyche, as people who consume narrative, that wants to hurt and murder women and young women for narrative? 
you know, um, going back to Greek tragedy to film noir and onward and onward and onward, there's like an endless parade of stories that you consume, that I consume, that we all consume that are about men trying to save women um, or men figuring out who killed a woman or protect them or it all sort of treats the female body and identity as object so that men can, what, self-actualize or something or understand their own complicated and messed up relationship with their fathers, but it's never actually female-centered. And um, I think as I was thinking about that, I began to think about my daughter. Um, I'm a parent. I have three kids. I began to think about my sister and my wife and my mom and the stories that they grew up with and that my daughter has available to her. Um, And I realized that when I was growing up, you know, stories about young people coming of age, first brushes with death and mortality and complicity, guilt, um, all of those things. There were so many stories where I could see a version of myself on screen. And it was a privilege that I'd taken for granted. And um, that really was the catalyst for sort of exploring this story and wanting to make a story that is chiefly a story about friendship, that is a love story between friends that's you know, about that gray sort of liminal space um, before adolescence when you're not, not a teenager, you're still a kid and imagination is sort of one of your big tools to process trauma. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, that's where it all came from. Amazing. And then, so that's where it came from. And then what happens? Did you start to write it? Did you, I know you worked with a co-writer. How did that process work? What then? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the people that I talked to along the way was my friend Benjamin Percy, who is um, really, we've written together before. He lives in the Midwest. He's a fantastic comic book writer, novelist, short story writer. Um, I had gone to the Sundance Lab years ago, at, at having adapted one of his short stories that was in the Paris Review and Best American Short Stories. He has a daughter that is the age of these kids. Um, and it sort of began this conversation of just how do we talk to our kids about this? I talked about my wife, um, you know, who works at a middle school, high school, talked to my sister, um, who's a social worker, who's worked with kids her whole, the bulk of her whole career. And sort of, again, just really looking at narratives, you know, like, I mean, Ben, um, my co-writer, he had a comic book, um, a Marvel comic book come out and when it came out in the Twin Cities, he went to sort of get the, the copy and brought his 12-year-old daughter with him. And they spent a while in this comic book shop. And after an hour, his daughter came up to him and said, Dad, where are the female protagonists? Where are the female superheroes? And, um, you know, we, we just sort of began these conversations from 30,000 feet and then sort of just decided to dive into the story and write it and also recognize that we have blind spots, you know, as people who are our age, as men, that we have blind spots. And we sort of made a pact that at every stage we would just submit it to the scrutiny of our toughest critics, you know, friends, especially female friends, and sort of ask them what, what gels, what works, what doesn't work, and had them read the script and just wrote it and rewrote it and wrote it and rewrote it um, endlessly. Um, and then I um, sent it to Jennifer Dana, to Jen Dana, who is sort of my producing partner on it and someone I just trust her so much. She made an amazing movie called The Assistant. She made a movie called Brigsby Bear um, and um, sort of asked her what she thought of it and we really clicked on it and I sort of rewrote the script some after talking to her and then we were off to the races. That's amazing. Um, do you want to talk about the casting of it? Because it does seem, you know, these four young women really hold it up. What was the process both of casting it and then working with them on set? Was it a lot of takes? Did you do improv? 
Yeah. Yeah. We have an amazing cast. Um, so much credit, um, to our casting director, A.V. Kaufman, who I've worked with before, um, who I think is a real artist at, and sort of paints by putting together ensembles. She's incredible at discovering young actors. When we first met years and years ago, I, I, I love the casting she'd done on a Jim Sheridan movie called In America, but she also did Brokeback Mountain and Lincoln and so many other great films. And, um, she and I and Jen, um, we just participated in a lot of casting sessions that were because of COVID were over Zoom. Um, so we just met many, 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 many young actors. Um, and, you know, and would try to sort of make, make them come. I mean, they would be pre-read by AV. We would try to sort of make them comfortable in the room. We would do auditions and improv sort of on Zoom. We would talk amongst ourselves and sort of just try to find the kids that we thought both best served the roles, um, but then who we just found the most interesting, the ones who sort of captured our imagination. Um, I mean, it was um, years ago, I made a movie called The Spectacular Now, where um, it was the same process. The kids were older, they were teenagers, but it was ultimately we cast Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley and Brie Larson and Caitlin Deaver. And for them, it was the same thing. It was in some cases, some of them were already known, in some cases not, but it was like not who do you think is going to be famous, but who do you just find interesting? Who, I, I mean, I think an actor's great tool is their imagination um, in addition to their empathy and this natural innate, you know, t- talent um, and how right they are for it. But it's, it's really through those um, auditions, it was just, you know, who do we like watching, you know, the most? And then once we found these four amazing actors, Leah and Eden and Sinai and Madeline, um, I began, um, we began doing like Zoom hangouts. Um, I wanted, you know, if it was in person, um, I would have, you know, we would have all gone to a coffee shop or something or gone to a park, but it was in, we were all in different places in the country. Um, and, um, you know, I was really nervous. Um, I was like, I hope they like each other. Um, I hope that they'll feel like real friends that have known each other for half their lives. I mean, the characters are only 11 or 12, but they've known each other since they were kids. And I think in the very first Zoom conversation we all had, it was the four of them and me, I asked like one question. I, um, I had all these questions I wanted to ask them, but I think I said, man, COVID's so weird. I said something really dumb. I was like, COVID's so weird. What has school been like? Like, what has it been? What has remote learning been like for all of you? Like, how have you, I don't know, how has it been? Because I'm struggling with my kids and dealing with school and stuff. What's it like for you? And they proceeded to just talk and laugh and go deep for an hour and a half. Um, and I was just blown away that a, like they had such an innate chemistry and such different energies, different like music to their voices, but just, they were smart. They were thoughtful. They were critical thinkers, political thinkers, um, great sense of humor about everything and just uh, sophistication. And I felt like, well, these are going to be my great allies, you know, in, I want to listen to them, you know, as much as I can. And so then I proceeded to sort of do um, rehearsals with them, um, like Zoom rehearsals. In some cases, I would just one, you know, the two of us and sort of me really just going through the script and asking them, would you say this? Would you say this? (laughs) No, you wouldn't. Okay, what would you do? What would you say? And that, and then sometimes with a couple of them together. And simultaneously, we um, we were casting the parents, the moms, and who had to, you know, believably be be these kids' parents, but then also there's that tough thing of, of playing a role, I think a supporting role, which, you know, the adult actors do where they're not in it a lot, 
but you have to feel the weight of an entire family. There's this ellipsis of if there's trauma in the case of a family, like a separation, things like that, you just have to really feel it. It has to feel lived in. Um, and again, Evie was so helpful in that. Um, I'd worked with Megan Mullally um, before. She had had a part in this film I made called Smashed. Um, and um, Lake Bell I'd always been a fan of. Sarah Cooper, who's in it, I had seen in 2020, <laughs> the first year we were all home because of COVID stuff. I just watched her in all these TikTok videos where she would do um, these Donald Trump things where she would just like um, lip sync to his speeches and make fun of him. And it was amazing. And it helped me get through COVID um, year one. Um, and then Ashley Medekwe, who's also in it, she auditioned and was just like remarkable. I had no idea she was even British. Um, and just, um, and um, yeah. And then, and then once we were in Utah, um, we just spent as much time as we could together, all of us, you know, sort of talking through things. I, I really wanted the kids to hang out with the adult actors who'd be playing their mothers. That was really important to me. And you know, we were shooting, um, you know, it was last summer. It was in Utah. It was 105. The Western United States was on fire. Um, and um, because it was young actors, we couldn't work that long. So it was really a tightrope of everything having to go go right. And did it? It did, yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, it really felt, I mean, the, the, the you know, the cast really had, had gelled so much. Like they felt like friends that were hanging out. Um, when we weren't filming, they were all staying in the same hotel. And so they would just sort of hang out in the lobby or each other's rooms or whatever and watch movies and just sort of, they, um, you know, or do art together. Um, and they, yeah, they were just funny and great. I mean, are funny and great. Um, yeah. So. It, well, one of the things um, that I feel like is really special about the movie is there's like a real sense of, it's specifically now, but there's also a timelessness to both the themes and to the locations, you know, the, it's largely score. Do you want to talk about that and how much were you thinking about that? Cause it doesn't say, Oh, this is out of time, but it clearly also has this really deep rooted classic kind of sense of what it is to be in that in-between nether region of neither child nor adult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a big decision. I mean, some films need to be in a specific time. I mean, I made a film called The End of the Tour that was about real people. It took place in 1996 and 2008. And that was very important. And that informed fashion, that informed the music and the culture of, of the characters. Um, with The Spectacular Now, we shot it 10 years ago. And um, I remember, like, I wanted it to exist then, but I was, I wanted to be very... Um, conservative with the amount of technology that the kids were using. I wanted to be realistic for how kids, you know, use, use their, their objects, their, their pocket computers, things like that. But I didn't want to fetishize it. And in this case, yeah, I mean, I, there was a moment when we were writing and I was like, well, I could set it in the nineties. I could set it when I was these kids eight or eighties when I was these kids age. Um, but I think it was really important to me that it not feel like it's, yeah, you know, that I, I didn't want it entirely to be a memory. Like, I think I wanted the vibe of the movie. I mean, I said this to sort of some of the department heads. I was like, I do, I want it to feel sort of like a memory of childhood, a dream of childhood, maybe a nightmare of childhood, <laughs> all of those things at once. But it's very specifically something that I would have made this differently when I didn't have kids. Like, I think, you know, if I'd made it 15 years ago, it really would have been me sort of trying to sort of diving totally into what it was to be 12. Um, and which I did here, but I'm, there's this double narrative here where it's like I relate to the parents a lot. And I feel like I'm constantly with my own kids, both trying to give them, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I want to give them enough space to be independent, to get into good good trouble um, and to make mistakes and all those things. I also have my own anxiety that I'm bringing to the table and I'm sure I'm projecting onto them. And I'm constantly, 
you know, asking myself like, well, what was I doing at their age? I was getting into a lot of trouble, but was it, you know, I, I wonder if I'm a rev- revisionist historian with my own sense of childhood. And I think all parents are in that weird tap dance um, with, with their kids. Right. Yeah. No, one thing I said to you just before we came up here is that I think the end does this beautiful thing of you're sort of with the girls the whole time and then you go to the parents and you immediately, I mean, this is what it did for me, I should say, is that I empathized with both and I really understood, I was able to sort of be in that moment with the girls at the end, but also really feel for Lake Bell not having any friends and the new bond that these women go through as parents and as women that were once that age. So it it is firing on many different cylinders at the end and perspectives. And that feels really difficult and and sort of rare considering that you've been with mainly one uh, perspective most of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think when you have like four characters who are together most of the time, you know, the can have a sense of a hive mind, but they have their own experiences, their own perspectives on things. And I think, you know, the, the film is about, you know, both the trauma of growing up and the fear of the future and what's going to happen and saying goodbye. You know, it's when you are 11 or 12, depending on your own life experience, um, your greatest fear might be losing your best friends. It might even be bigger and more front of mind than death if you haven't, if you've been lucky enough to get that old and not encounter it yet. It is the case for these kids. One of the kids has had a, a her parents, their marriage is dissolved and that's a real thing for her. Um, but then there is a real trauma that comes and they, you know, how they negotiate that, how they debate that, the dialectic of what to do, what's, what's right. You know, it's very easy, I think, as adults to make assumptions, well, this is clearly what you do. You would definitely call the police. You would definitely do these things. And it's like, the truth is when I'm, you know, around kids, when I'm around my kids, my kids' friends, the kids at my wife's school, like the way that they relate to so many of the things that seemed obvious when I was a kid, the way they relate to the idea of law enforcement, you know, um, and would you immediately call call them? It's like, well, if you're growing up in an age of George Floyd, if you're growing up in an age where you've seen people with mental health crises sort of um, having situations that got escalated because of that, if you've seen any number of things like, like that, you might make decisions that it's through the lens of child logic to some degree. Um, and that was really important to me. And it was also important to balance that with these parents, these four parents who have, you know, who probably don't have a lot in common except that their kids all went to the same public school. (laughs) And that's what sort of brought them together. And I don't know, I mean, that's what a lot of our best friends, it just is that. It's just a geographic um, bit of randomness sometimes that can make people become the friends you're going to spend your whole life with. And, you know, I, I think I was thinking about all of that and also just the past couple years I mean, I think all films are innately political. They can't not be. Even if you're not making something that's about politics, it, you're alive in the world. <laughs> you're living at a specific time where, th- where things are happening, where you're living under a presidential administration or this is happening with the, the climate, whatever it is. So your, your, your films, your stories, they have to contend with that. And I think over the past couple of years, you know, for a lot of kids, especially young kids where we want to create a safe cocoon, you know, a safe childhood for them where they can, um, you know, be innocent, you know, whatever that means. While also not lying to our kids. Um, you know, a lot's been ruptured. Um, a lot was already ruptured for people depending on privilege, but for a lot of, um, you know, for a lot of us, it's, it's become a lot harder to look your kids in the eye, to look a little kid in the eye and say, everything's going to be okay. When you have a 
six-year-old who, who wonders if when mommy and daddy go out the door, they're going to breathe bad air and die, which was suddenly what was happening, you know, in the past couple of years. Um, death, and the idea of death or sickness came, I think, to the doorstep of a lot of families that just never had had to contend with it. Um, I think that's something that I was really interested in, sort of just the general vibe of the movie, um, what, what, what that's like. And it was really, you know... Um, I don't know, like I've seen films about teenagers and I've seen films about little kids relating to their parents, but there's a very, again, the very specific time that this takes place in, which is like, I think that last gasp when you still are kind of a kid, you know, by six, by the end of sixth grade, by seventh grade, you kids are just, (laughs) it's seventh pit of hell type stuff. I think it can be, you know, you're, you're doing like teenage cosplay. Um, But I, I wanted it to exist in that last moment when, when, you are supposed to be quote unquote innocent. Yeah. And it also seems like that moment when you're also starting to realize that your parents aren't God per se, you know, the, that they are human and they are flawed and how are you safe in light of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating. Right. And I think, I mean, and you, and you know, I mean, um, I think for boys it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's when your dad becomes super, becomes fallible, you know, they're not Superman. Um, and, and they, um, you know, and, and it makes you sort of question everything. I think with with girls and their moms. I mean, you can speak to this. And I think your stories, you know, that you've that you've explored in your films, um, deal with this so well. Um, the way parents and children, especially mothers and daughters, it's a, it's a unique kind of relationship, right? Um, and I've seen it over and over. I've seen it with my wife and her mom and things like that, where it's there's this, you know, where a mother needs to be a mother, but they also start becoming a friend, and their boundaries need to be defined, and it gets really blurry. I find that really fascinating. Totally. Switching gears a little bit. Um, do you want to talk about the cinematography and sort of what you were w- watching, talking about, how you came to this language, all of that? Yeah. Um, I worked with a really fantastic uh, cinematographer named um, Greta Zazula, and she's just a total artist. Um, and I mean, her still photography is stunning. She's a great DP. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think we again, because of COVID, we had the luxury. She was on the East Coast. I was here. We had the luxury of um, being able to just talk a lot for months and months and months. I mean, over a year, I think we would just have once a week, once every couple of weeks, we just have a long sort of uh, conversation or Zoom conversation. And in some cases where we had both sort of said, hey, I'm going to watch this movie this coming week. Will you watch this movie? Um, and then we would just talk about it. We would share photographs. Like I would send her a bunch of like William Eggleston photographs. She would send me Todd Heido photographs, whatever it was, we would just shoot things back and forth. Um, and I think, you know, and we, we, you know, we were shot listing, we were storyboarding, things like that. But really what was important for us was for each scene, if we could boil it down to like an image, what would that be? I remember that was like the big thing, the most important thing. If there was like an anchor image that like told the story of that scene, what would it be? And let's try to find that thing. And, um, you know, other than that, we knew, um, because it was four kids, um, we didn't, you know, we wanted to take advantage of the space. You know, we wanted the environment of where we were shooting to be sort of an externalization of like what these kids of their psychology, you know, but also to be able to handle four people in a frame. We knew we had to go wide and we didn't want it to look, um, we didn't want it to look super modern or clean. I mean, we really went out of our way to just find old, old lenses. And um, again, we wanted it to exist now, um, but we wanted to have 
if there were mistakes sort of in this wabi-sabi way, if there were mistakes sort of or aberrations or things that looked a little messy, that was okay to us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about the score? Well? Yeah. Yeah. It was a really great, um, composer, um, named Sophie Holquist, um, who records as drum and lace. Um, I, you know, I had been, I knew that like for the bulk of the department heads that I was working with, that I wanted to work with female department heads. It was really important to me. Um, and that to have people that I, I felt like really understood and could sort of mind meld with these characters and understand their souls. It's, it was, I, I knew that I wanted a female cinematographer. I knew that I needed you know, a female producing partner who could help me be honest about these characters and make important decisions behind the camera in addition to in front of it. And um, with Composer, it was really important to me as well. Like at the past couple films I'd done, <clears throat> I'd worked with Danny Elfman, um, who's an amazing, amazing um, composer who I love. Um, but I wanted this score to feel like, I don't know, kind of what was going on in the subconscious mind of these kids, um, if that makes sense. Like I didn't want it to just mimic what like Top 40 radio and stuff like that, but I really wanted it to have a soulfulness and create a soundscape that felt um, like it was like their collective consciousness. Um, and I was meeting many composers and listening to lots of things. And then someone asked me if I had seen the show Dickinson, um, which um, I had not. Um, and then I watched some of it and it was great, but the score um, was why it was pointed out to me and the score was amazing. And, um, and Sophie had done, has done that show and it was just remarkable. I mean, she is, you know, on her own, she's an experimental electronic musician. She also does, um, she's also a composer. Her husband's also a really great musician composer. And yeah, I mean, it was just sort of, we had, didn't have to say a lot, <laughs> you know? I mean, we, it, it was a great thing. I think it's always kind of, I'm sure it's really funny when directors sit down with composers and try to speak in musical terms, unless they themselves are serious musicians, <laughs> just, just like when they start talking lenses with a DP. Um, I think sometimes, uh, um, like I am a nerd for music and I am a nerd for lenses, but I know that emotions are probably what's more important to convey to your collaborators, your department heads, like what the scene is about and what you want it to feel like. And if you have specific references, I want it to sound like this. But really, in this case, it was the emotions that I wanted. And that was what was important for me to convey to Sophie. Um, but what was great was, I mean, you know, the, the, the film itself already spoke to her. And the ideas that she already had, it felt like she was taking language out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, like the, like what, what I was already going to say, she already innately got. And, and I feel like when you're surrounding yourself with the right collaborators, when you've made, when you've cast the right people as collaborators... 70% of the time you're probably going to be on the same page from the go, you know, and it's, it's maybe you're hiring them for that 20 or 30% of the time when you would make a different choice. And I think if your ego is in the right place and if you're open to the idea that you're not always the smartest person in the room and you like collaborating, you, you listen, you know, and you listen to their perspective. And that's, what's amazing about the collaboration through film or TV. You get to collaborate with other great artists. And yeah, Sophie, um, just sort of expanded my notion of like what, what this could sound like. And early ideas I had about like having more maybe needle drop music, things like that kind of went away. Once, once I heard what she was creating, I, I wanted more and more of it in the film more, more than I probably would have naturally gravitated towards. Interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, okay. So two last questions. Um, the first one is just about the editing. I know you've worked with this editor, uh, Darren before. Do you just, are you in the room all the time? Do you come and go? Cause you have such a relationship with him. What's that like? 
Yeah, um, I've, I've worked with Darren Navarro a lot um, over the years. Um, we did Spectacular Now together and End of the Tour, and I had admired work that he had done with um, Aza Jacobs, who's a great director, as, w- as well as work he'd done with William Friedkin. Um, we also worked on a show called Sorry for Your Loss. And yeah, we just, in a nerdy way, we like a lot of the same things. There's just a shorthand. And and I think like when we disagree about things, it's it's like it makes for a fun conversation because it's two film nerds who are sort of passionate about what we believe in. It's so dorky, but um, I think that's what you want. You want people who sort of challenge your idea of a thing. Um, and so, I mean, when I first when I first worked with Darren on Spectacular Now, I was there all the time. I was probably to an annoying degree. I was like a shadow who just. Um, was living in the editing suite as much as humanly possible and probably not, uh, Darren's never said this, but probably not giving the breathing room that would have been healthy or good or to, to allow, you know, the, um, to get the objectivity to be able to step away and then come back and see things with fresh eyes. Um, when we did the end of the tour together, I had just had my first child um, and we set up an editing suite um, in, a, in an office in my neighbor's place, so, which was like, it was right there, but it made a big difference that it was in a different, you know, in a different place. So I was spending my days like taking care of an infant um, and then going over and watching what Darren had worked on and giving some notes and then disappearing again and then coming back. And it felt really healthy to not be so controlling and OCD, I think from for me. And I, I think that's the more we've worked together, I just... I'm better at trusting, um, <laughs> and um, and I, I and we can less needs to be said, you know, for me to say, well, I think I would do this or that. Like it's we kind of get it, you know. Um, and as we've worked together more, it's been more like that. And then this was um, again because of COVID, we were not in the editing room together, um, even though he was in LA and I was in LA, we were separate. And then sometimes I would come in, but I was, I was watching a lot of things on links. Um, and even, even though we were in the same city, we like watching links, getting on the phone, talking through things. And then sort of as we got later into it, we're spending time together, but not, not a lot in person. Oh, great. Uh, so last question, a little bit more big picture. How do you, you know, you do so much different kinds of stuff from TV to this, to other kinds of films. How do you choose material? How do you decide to engage and spend your time? You know, I mean, I think I, like I went straight from this, um, straight from this to doing a TV show last fall for Amazon called Daisy Jones and the Six, which will come out next year, which is like a rock and roll show set in the seventies. Um, now I'm doing a TV show for Apple called Shrinking, which is about therapists in Pasadena. It's from the Ted Lasso folks. And um, they're all totally different on the surface, but I think, when I look at them, I think, I mean, they're all stories that a, I would want to watch. Like when I, when I read a script, when I hear an idea, when I have an idea, maybe to write something, it's just something that I can't get out of my head, you know, like for better or worse. I think a lot of them contain something that I'm both excited by and afraid of and explore something that, um, I, I want to understand better and I can't shake, you know, it's the thing I can't not think about. And I think, you know, when you're working on something like a movie or a long a TV series, when you take it all the way through to post, you're going to be in a relationship with it for a long time. Um, and it's just like a relationship with another person. There's going to be thrilling moments. There's going to be boring moments. There's going to be frustrating moments. But it has to really be under your skin enough to make it all, to make you care, I think. And I think that's that's what I'm looking for. And I think I, I, I want to make, I don't know, I want to make stories that have 
value and meaning to me and that have love in them. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so schmaltzy, but like for me, I want to make something that I think is, um, you know, speaks to, to, to my value system and the things that I care about. And it's, it's, I, I want to make things that are entertaining, but I want to make things that are soulful and, and have my, my fingerprints and the fingerprints of all the people I make things with all over them. I think, I think that mess of life is something that I like best when I feel like I'm working with people who, who like things that go to those places, get, get a little messy. And there's fingerprints at the on the titles. <laughs> there <laughs> <All> are. Over. <laughs> Literal, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming, and thank you everyone for Th- being here too. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. And you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 